Hello, I'm Paola and welcome to A Contemplative Revolution, a podcast by the WCCN about what it means to live a contemplative, spiritual and Christian life while still playing an active role in the modern world. Join us for conversations with fellow contemplatives in action from around the globe. In this podcast, Professor Peter Gilbert considers the importance of the spiritual dimension in human living in general and health and social care in particular. He draws on the experience of people who have experienced mental distress, including his own, and also research evidence on the vital contribution of faith to mental well-being. I hope you enjoy this podcast. into this work around spirituality and mental health by accident. I was appointed to lead on social care and social work, which I did know something about, by the National Institute for Mental Health in England. And then the tragic events of 9-11 happened, which of course we've been reminded of uh, uh, very cogently over the last few days. And there was a realization by the National Institute that we needed to engage more with faith communities and we needed to take on board the issue of spirituality. And I was asked to hold this issue. One of my bits of advice to you today is, if anybody in government ever asks you to hold this issue, say no very quickly. Um, And I went to a conference in the East Midlands and introduced myself, amongst other people, as um, somebody leading on social care and social work. And then very sotto voce said, And I've also been asked to hold this issue of spirituality. And all the service users said, that's what we want to talk about. And I thought, oh dear, Um, because I'm not sure I know what I'm talking about. Uh, But that was very much the driving force, that service users said, we want to talk about our spirituality, our beliefs, our faith, and we don't feel that we're allowed to do so. And in a sense, I think what the National Institute, sadly no longer with us now, with the National Forum, have tried to do, and in a sense, very much today, Meditatio are doing, is giving permission to talk about these issues. Now, Father Lawrence has spoken very cogently about love, and I'm going to break the um, peace of the hall by playing you some loud music about love and showing you some pictures.
want to know what love is, I want you to show me. I want to know what love is, I know you can show me. And a service user that I worked with for many years said to me once, what we want is love. So simple and yet so complex in many ways. Because what do we mean by love? How can we show love? What are the languages of love? Because it strikes me that for some, words may be very important. But for others, words are very difficult to accept. For somebody, again, perhaps on their deathbed, with Alzheimer's, touch may be important. But again, touch is difficult. So what do we mean by love? But as Father Lawrence reminded us, human beings are made for connection. And as we'll hear further on today, all the evidence, all the increasing neuroscience says that human beings have that need to connect outwards to the sense of the transcendent and imminently to uh, each other and to nature. And reports such as the Mental Health Foundation's recent report on loneliness that came out last year is saying that increasingly, in a very Americanized society, in many ways a very individualized society, we are increasingly actually um, individualized and on our own. We are separated out. About 10 years ago, I had a serious depressive illness, and this picture of the Dalai Lama I had up in my living room. Now, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist. Um, one of my confessions today is, in many senses, and I, I have confessed this to Father Lawrence, I'm, I'm not in many ways a very meditative uh, person, or I meditate probably by accident rather than design. But I have the Dalai Lama's face in my living room for a number of reasons. One is the smile. And the Dalai Lama, as you know, has written very powerfully and movingly about the importance of the human smile which I think is, is absolutely right. W one of the interesting things, isn't it, about, uh, well, I'm, I'm a long-distance runner, uh, which is really, in a sense, I'll come on to this later, my meditative technique. And if you're on a long-distance run, you're passing people um, who are marking the course. And I usually say, thank you, and smile. And it's amazing the reception you get back. They become more animated. They smile. They start cheering you on. Just these very simple human interactions are so important. And of course, he's in exile. And those of us who've experienced mental ill health, what we feel like is in exile. We feel, feel like the Israelites in Babylon, sitting by a river, singing strange songs. We are a stranger in a strange land. Now, rather unwisely, when I was at a meeting in the Department of Health, I mentioned that, well, I have my depression, I had the face of the Dalai Lama up in my living room. And a top psychologist from the Department of Health said, Peter, you're a very strange man. <laughs> and as my dear cousins Mike and Jilly in the audience will know, I am, of course, a very strange man. But what, uh, what we don't know is what people will find helpful in uh, a particular situation. What do service users want from services? And this is probably true right across all services, but certainly in mental health, all the research says that people want very basic things. One of the helpful things I think about the government's new strategy is actually the title, No Health Without Mental Health. We cannot be healthy fully without mental health. And so being seen as a whole person, and again, Father Lawrence talks about wholeness and holistic care. I have the privilege of running a retreat at the Benedictine Abbey of Worth every September. And two years ago, I had in my group the workaholics workaholic. He was a lawyer uh, with a big city firm in London, and he said to me, Peter, all this stuff about spirituality, that's all very well, but if I've got a nasty... I want somebody to fix it. And there was a pause. And luckily we had 
uh, a lovely Sri Lankan bone marrow specialist, a doctor, in the group. And he said, well, of course, if you have a nasty, you want us to fix it. But unless I treat you as a whole patient, I cannot be a whole doctor. And I think that goes for all professions because, of course, as Oscar Wilde said, every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. And so it is. So it is. And I think it's been very helpful to have the Royal College of Psychiatrists bring out their book on spirituality and psychiatry, which in the preface, Andrew Powell is a lovely man, says very clearly that the patient and the doctor are in complementary roles. Both need each other. And a lot of professionals, sadly, sometimes forget this. Um, sometimes faith communities forget this as well, that actually we need each other. Start where I am, not where you think I am. I had a chief executive of a mental health trust say to me the other day that his parents live a couple of cities away from him and his mother very sadly died of cancer. They were both Roman Catholics, practicing Roman Catholics, went to the church regularly, and his father continued to go, but he was suffering from depression. So the local community team came to visit him, and they started with this wonderful open question, Mr. X, what's important to you? So he told them. He said he was very sad, he was very depressed, he was very traumatized by his wife's death, but he went to the local church, he went to mass, he found the sacraments very important, the priest was very empathetic because he had also had depression in, in his past. He found the community very supportive. There was an embarrassed pause. And then the professional said, ah, Mr. X, leaving that aside, what's important to you? How to end a relationship so quickly? Just another little story from my past. Years ago, I worked for six years in one of the old learning disability hospitals. Um, where love wasn't shown all that much, I have to say, although there, there was some brilliant staff there working against the odds in one of the old institutions. And I was also a reviewing officer in a local hostel, and I was chairing this review, and we'll call her Gwen. Gwen was sitting down, and I noticed that Gwen had, it, it said in her notes that she had attended a Salvation Army group. So I said, do Gwen, do you still go? And in answer, she got to her feet and she sang three verses straight through of one of our well-known hymns. And the officer in charge of the hostel said, Peter, I'm really embarrassed, but Gwen's carer left six months ago and she used to take her to the Salvation Army regularly. And now Gwen doesn't go. I, I will make sure that we send somebody with her. So just finding out what's important, and I think we'll find with the new census that issues about culture, identity, and faith are of increasing importance. And we've just brought out a new book, sorry, an advert, uh, Spirituality and Mental Health, where we try and cover a whole range of issues, uh, and several people related to this have, um, uh, here have uh, contributed, for which many thanks. So what do carers want? Well, all of the above, and to be seen really as somebody who offers expertise, but also not just to be seen as a carer, but as a husband, lover, son, daughter, as the individual. And I think one of the best writers and speakers on this is Barbara Poynton, whose husband, ex-husband, late lamented husband, Malcolm, contracted pre-senile dementia in his early 50s. And Barbara writes very movingly about when, and I think this again ties in with the Desert Fathers, what she says is when an individual is stripped of everything that we accrete in the modern world, then that comes back to the basic essential of the individual. And she said, Malcolm's losses, ironically, were turned into gains. My alcohol intake, well, it's a bit early, but I'll have a gin and tonic. This is part of the new commissioning framework. 
Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because time is short and I, I want to leave some time for questions before we break for coffee. But just one point on this is that whatever we do in terms of running services, we have a tendency to institutionalize things. And in a sense, we've all got a duty to shake the institution. Uh, working at universities always sounds like, like a great idea, but universities are institutions. Um, one of the odd things about universities, um, perhaps we shouldn't record this bit, uh, is that they don't like asking questions very much. The old Socratic, um, let's ask some awkward questions, is not always greatly welcomed. And of course we know what happened to Socrates, don't we? Given a cup of hemlock. Now this is the document that was brought out by the Department of Health uh, two years ago on religion or belief. And it basically says, and I know Dr. Campion is going to talk about this early, uh, later in one of the workshops, research, research suggests that attention to the religious and cultural needs of patients and service users contri can contribute to their well-being and reduce their length of stay in hospital. So there's an ethical driver here, there's a humane driver, but there's also a cost driver, which obviously, as the NHS is going to try and save 20 million billion pounds, is a major issue that we need to attend to. What does staff want? Because I, I came in as a director of social services um, when the new Labour government took over in, in 97. And if you remember Gordon Brown, when he was in love with prudence, before he jilted prudence and started spending money we didn't have. Better not. Sorry, there's an awful lot of things we probably shouldn't, uh, probably shouldn't record. I shouldn't make political statements or whatever. But, but actually, coming in as a director of social services, um, we actually had to take a huge amount of money out of the budget because we just couldn't um, afford to run what we were doing. Now, the only way to do some of the cost savings we had to do in a moral sense was to engage people who use services, carers, voluntary organizations, and staff. And if we lose sight of that, we're in deep, deep trouble. One of the odd things about, again, working in organizations is that quite often we don't seem to get to know staff all that well. I was working with a social work group in a big city only a couple of months ago, and they said, well, Peter, we don't really know each other because we come in and we do the work and we're so busy and we're on the computer, we just don't have time to get to know each other. And quite often, we don't get to know the staff we work with until we get to the leaving do and give them the, the watch or the clock or the flowers or whatever. Because then, of course, you look at somebody's personnel file to do the leaving speech and you suddenly find some interesting things. And there was a, a guy who'd been running services when I worked in Staffordshire and uh, when he retired after 25 years, he said, oh, I don't want to leave him do, Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm a very sort of formal individual. People won't want to come. And I said, I think they will. And it's very important that we say thank you because we may not have said thank you enough in the past. And reading his file to do the speech, I noticed that he was a very good saxophone player. The most unlikely person ever to play a saxophone you'd never have met because he wore sort of three triple suits and all of this. Anyway, in the speech, I said, well, you know, I, I, I see that X is a really good saxophone player like Bill Clinton. Now, let's call him Fred. Fred was a very, very dapper, quite small man. His wife was a very large, rather formidable woman. So he very hastily pointed out that the only connection between himself and Bill Clinton was the saxophone playing. This is, and, and I would recommend really reading this article, it, it's Googleable uh, on the internet, Society Guardian. Um, Jonathan uh, and I will know um, uh, Ian McPherson very well. He was recently retired after being head of the National Mental Health Development Unit. And this is a brilliant article because what he says is that he had this experience of uh, mental illness when he was an adolescent. He went into one of the old institutions in Glasgow when he decided to train as a clinical psychologist, he thought that he could use this experience 
in an empathetic way, in a creative way with service users, and was told, no, there's professionals and there's people who use services and never the twain will meet. And I think we are beginning to break that, break that down, but it is still a difficult issue. It's still a tricky issue, and we need to keep talking about that. Again, I think the religious tradition, uh, Henri Nouan, the wounded healer, has a lot to say to us about how we are in touch with ourselves. And Jonathan Sachs, from the Jewish tradition, we see as the basis of our humanity the fact that we are all ultimately the same. We are vulnerable, we are embodied creatures, we feel hunger, thirst, fear, pain. We reason, hope, dream, aspire. And do mental health services allow people to dream and aspire? Or do we kill and crush those hopes? And yet, of course, we are all unique. One of the things that I think is very interesting um, is that um, the bean, you get um, the BNP, don't you, talking about um, Aboriginal Englishmen. There's no such thing. Anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians agree there's no such, there's no such thing. And we are all, all much more in our ethnicity, very much more complicated than we think we are. I'm going to just ask you very, very briefly, just to think to yourselves and note down on a bit of paper, where do you think, which modern country do you think my paternal DNA goes back to? Which modern country do you think my European, sorry, my DNA goes back to? Sorry, giving you a clue there. Just briefly, just, just, just pen something down. Hi everyone, you're listening to A Contemplative Revolution, a podcast by the WCCM, about what it means to live a contemplative, spiritual and Christian life while still playing an active role in our modern world. Just a quick reminder, if you like this show, be sure to subscribe. And if you want to learn more about the important work of the WCCM, you can find us online at wccm.org. And now, back to the podcast. Anybody got any thoughts? Anybody like to shout out? Very interesting. Any others? Romania? Interesting. Irish? Uh huh. Netherlands? France? Yes, there, there is a yes. Right. Well, no. Thank you for, for 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 that. Just picking up the Irish bit. In fact, we are not an Anglo-Saxon nation. The Oxford geneticist says that we're mainly Celtic because the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons really took over the, um, the, the women folk uh, when, they, when they invaded. So we're not an Anglo-Saxon nation. We're only 12% Anglo-Saxon heritage. We are, mainly, we are mainly Celtic. And actually, yes, Denmark um, and Germany, my father's DNA stems back, it's Anglo-Saxon. So it actually stems back to Denmark and, and Germany. But my mother's DNA is a bit more complicated. So would you mind just writing down where you think my mother's DNA, which modern country, and it's not European, do you think my mother's DNA comes from? Any thoughts? China, interesting. Sorry? Ethiopia? Mm. Israel? Closer. Closer. Any advances on Israel? Iraq. And in Iraq. And in fact, quite a lot of us come from Iraq because the, the first cities, uh, Mesopotamia, um, people moved uh, across, across Europe. And my my family and my mother's family moved along the Mediterranean coast uh, and settled in Portugal. My uh, mother's mother was a Mary, a Mary de Freitas. Uh, we also have Mauritian connections, French Mauritian connections as well, don't we? So we're very complicated. In fact, my uh, grandmother uh, was a, a, 
Portuguese Catholic who married a Scottish Presbyterian rugby player, which meant that one part of the family didn't talk to the other for quite a long time. But it is quite interesting that we are much more complicated than we tend to, tend to think. So hopefully, mental health services are looking at the whole person. We used to talk a lot about the medical model, and I think some people still, still, still do that. But I think, and, and um, certainly uh, our medical colleagues here today do not think like that. They think in a very holistic, uh, very holistic, holistic way. That's not to say that medication may not be intensely important, and I will come on to that in a minute. But we need to look at the whole person. There is a danger in this country that we have a very good tendency to take a particular issue, say that's a panacea, and stick to it. So we've moved a bit from the medical model to the psychological model. So everybody should have cognitive behavioral therapy. And of course, there are great merits in cognitive behavioral therapy. But there is, in a sense, no such thing as a panacea. And again, what we've got to do in services is to engage with where the individual is coming from. And this is the definition of spirit in the Oxford English Dictionary, is the animating or life-giving force. Now we know that religious traditions have very much said that this is about God breathing God's spirit into, into individuals. So the Quran speaks of Allah breathing Allah's ruh into human beings. And the Jewish tradition has this very similar word, ruach, meaning not just breath, um, not just life, but invigorated life. But the Greeks as well, prior to the Abrahamic faith, talked very strongly about uh, pneuma, uh, breath, and, 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 and psyche. And psyche was very much the inner spirit, the personal spirit, and pneuma was the cosmic our connection with the cosmic spirit. And it was Plato who said, you cannot cure the body without the mind, nor the mind without the soul, because the part can never be well unless the whole is well. And perhaps every service should have that quote by Plato above the door. And if we don't engage with people's animating force, what on earth are we doing? We're wasting our time. We're wasting their time and we're wasting a great deal of money. I, I run with a, a banker called uh, Robin. He's, um, I keep on giving him these cartoons. He's going to retaliate shortly, I'm sure. Um, this is Augustine of Hippo, men and women go abroad to wander at the height of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the long course of the rivers, um, and we pass by ourselves without wondering. We're so busy these days, we are not really engaging. Um, and I, I think what we need to do is just sort of pause and engage, and, and sometimes just give people that feedback about where they are and what they're doing. And how we appreciate them. How many people have been watching Brian Cox's The Wonders of the Universe? Goodly a lot. Quite a lot. About, about a quarter. For anybody who hasn't seen it, do if it's repeated. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Um, uh, Brian is, a, is an atheist, but what he starts off, he starts off on a mountaintop saying, where do we come from? What are we doing here? Where are we going? And these are the questions that human beings have always asked. That's the distinction between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, that we asked these existential questions. And especially, what is the meaning of mental and physical distress? Because Viktor Frankl, the psychotherapist and concentration camp survivor, said, we can, we can take suffering, but we need to have a meaning in suffering. This is... Um, Henry Allingham, who was the um, uh, oldest living man, World War I survivor, asked what he put his long life down to. He said, tobacco, wine, 
and wild, wild women? It's a very un-PC answer, but uh, there we are. It's a lovely face. This goes back to the wounded healer. Only the soul that knows the mighty grief can know the mighty rapture. Sorrow comes to stretch out the spaces in the heart for joy. Well, to be fair, we've probably all felt that at times. This is a, another book that we produced uh, a little time ago. Uh, I would recommend this to you in that it has uh, a lot of service user input, especially some absolutely beautiful poems. One of the most brilliant is Premila Trevides, who talked about being brought up as a Hindu, finding that faith quite constraining, and then and giving it up, and then finding modern medicine even more constraining, and at her sister's funeral, rediscovering her faith. So, we all have a personal journey to find meaning. We are all pilgrims. And as you know, pilgrim comes from the Latin word for foreigner. We are all pilgrims. We are all strangers in a strange land. And I think I should confess to you that in many senses, I'm not a very meditative person. I'm a rather hyperactive person. Um, I'm in Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFJ. I'm at the further end of the extrovert um, spectrum. And I think we all have issues from childhood, don't we? One of the images that has been there in my childhood, from my childhood for a very long time and came back into prominence when I became depressed was being sent to boarding school at the age of eight um, by my parents, who meant well, um, but it wasn't a good move uh, for me. And, um, of course, as a social worker um, with Don, I studied um, um, John Bowlby and attachment theory, and separating children from their parents at the age of eight is not a good move. And especially as I had a teacher who used to tell me that I was stupid, and it's amazing how powerful these words are right through life when you're a young child. The messages in your head. And I was a director of social services um, 10 years ago, and we went through a series of financial crises, not unlike these, because we were one of the counties that were particularly badly funded. And on about the third financial crisis, I became overactive, over-responsible, um, slept about two hours a night, lost two stone in weight, which was good for the running, but not very good for anything else, and crashed. And went to my GP. And what my GP said was, when she saw me, she said, this is shit. Now, as Dr. Rosenthal will tell you, this is not a medical diagnosis. But those words were very powerful because I was trapped in a bit of a political um, uh, problem, which I, I, won't, I won't go into, but a political battle and, uh, within the authority. And I was being told really, well, you are a problem. And what the GP was saying is this, this situation. And just the use of the word shit, the fact that she could use a human expression before a medical one. And every so often I, I take her a card or uh, a bottle of wine. Because as I say, it's important to say thank you. Now, she diagnosed that I had depression and she gave me sleeping tablets, but she also said I needed antidepressants. Now, I didn't want to say that I was ill because I was still trying to run a big department and try and solve this budget crisis. But she gave me that sense of control 
that I could come back at some stage and talk to her, which I did. In, a few month, in, in a, about six weeks' time, I came back and asked for the, the antidepressants. And I should say that the antidepressants were really very helpful. I needed them as a way to get me through that situation and out the other side. So what else helped me? Uh, I had a friend who absorbed both my sorrow and my anger. And we're not very good, I don't think, in this country in allowing expressions of extreme grief or extreme anger. And I was fortunate because I was very sad and I was also very angry at my treatment to have somebody who could absorb that. I had a place of spiritual asylum, Worth Abbey, which I've mentioned before, which many of you may have seen the monastery or, or, the, or the big silence. And I'd known Worth for ages. In fact, um, uh, I've been at school there as a teenager and found that a very good, a very positive experience. And for me, if I was going to use one word for depression, it was disconnection. I felt somebody had pulled the plug on me. So my connection with family, with friends, with nature, and with God became very problematic because of the disconnection. But I could actually go back to Worth and sit in the choir with the monks, and I didn't need to pray. They prayed. They prayed. They did the office. And this must be true for many people from a faith tradition. For a Muslim, going to the mosque five times a day, just having that ritual, that ability to be there, not necessarily to do, but to be. And I suppose that was very much a meditative experience. And also the abbot, uh, Father Stephen, who's a lovely man, used to sit me down in the evening and allow me to talk. And he produced a bottle of port, which of course I wasn't meant to take with the antidepressants, as Dr. Rosenthal will note, but um, was actually very helpful. I had a friend who'd been through a similar experience. And running with my running club, um, now running was very much, is very much to me like a, a meditative experience because I am a hyperactive extrovert. I, I need to do something. So I find Tai Chi helpful and I find running helpful. And what I can do as a runner is actually to um, connect with, the, with nature, um, be with other people, but at that stage with the depression, I didn't really want to interact with other people, but I didn't need to. I could run with them without really interacting. And what I tend to do now, because I'm probably more aware of these issues, is I tend to pick up on other people, how people are feeling, how stressful they are, etc. I had some counseling, and that helped to interact with me and the, the past. And I had valued colleagues who offered me employment. And I'm very happy to talk about this in the question and answer session, which we'll come on to in a minute, um, and during coffee, lunch, or the workshop, or at any other time. And this is my running club. And again, this has a religious aspect to it. In fact, I have written an article, which will be very happy to circulate to people, which makes some uh, perhaps slightly tenuous uh, connections between faith and other organizations. But you can see that, in a sense, the sense of solidarity, identity, common ownership in a club like this has some um, metaphorical links with faith. I'm just going to finish with this story and then... Um, uh, and, then, and, then, and then open it, uh, open it out to, to questions. Uh, it's just the importance of telling the story. And this is Imran Zabruti, uh, who um, was manager in Camden, was very struck by the fact that somebody said to him, well, I came into your inpatient unit three months ago. I had a story to tell you. You had a story to listen to. But I leave now without me having told the story or you having listened to it. And just that sense of being able to, and this is one of the amazing things with running, actually, is that it is like the protected space that Imran set up on the ward. So, for example, I'm going to end with this story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
I went uh, running uh, on a weekend, a long training run, about 12 miles, uh, and I found myself running with somebody who used to be a Welsh international rugby player. A woman Welsh international rugby player, interestingly enough. Uh, you don't meet many of those. And for some reason, we got onto a long discussion about a whole range of things, rugby included, but one of them was about her religious tradition and the fact that she'd moved away from that, but she still saw herself as spiritual, but not religious, which is a phrase that we hear, that we hear a lot. But a really interesting discussion about some of those issues and some of those tensions with her family that has still stayed very much solidly with the religious tradition. So I suppose we just need space sometimes to listen to our own story, to hear other people's story, and actually being asked to um, speak with you and be with you today, I'd actually been reflecting a bit on my own story. I'd been telling myself my own story and listening to myself telling my own story, which we don't often do. Thank you very much for listening, and I'm very happy to take some questions. Thank you. We've got about 10 minutes for questions, so I invite at the back. Sorry, can we just pause for a minute? We've got a mic which will help with the recording of yeah, the question. Yes, thanks. Um, thank, thank you for your talk. Um, I myself have been a mental health user. Um, I'm a meditator. And I found that one big problem and on which you touched, which comes in play with meditation, spirit, spirituality and so on, is values. And I see two issues there. The psychoanalytical tradition, which refrains from making any statement themselves as a therapist. And the big PC thing in the NHS, you can't take sides. Do you have any suggestions how to overcome this? Because in my experience, the whole discussion of values tends to be left aside. People feel uncomfortable with it. Thank you. Um, come back to me if I don't answer this um, properly. I, I think we, we've still got quite a way to go. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I was talking to somebody just a couple of days ago about the fact that they'd had some counseling. Their, their mother had died very very suddenly, very unexpectedly. She had no time to say goodbye to her. She, she went for a counseling session, which she said was quite helpful, but she was put off by the fact that there was no real sort of human response. And that's part of our training. Um, and um, interestingly, Professor Kambui, who's a very prominent uh, psychiatrist, was saying to me the other day when we were giving a talk at um, Bart's Medical School, that actually we, perhaps we need to rethink the whole balance about being human and, and, and being professional. Um, and, and I suppose there are issues about, about boundaries. If you were telling me your story, you don't necessarily want to hear my story, uh, but you might do. Uh, but you might want to know that I have been in a similar place. I can't say um, I've been where you've you've been, or I, I know where you are, because I, I don't. But I need perhaps to um, convey some sort of sense of understanding, of, of common ground, perhaps. Do you want to come back to me on that? But it's not so much... It's of humanity or common ground, but my, my experience in the NHS and mental health system is, um, in, in a way you might say with the priest, I fall down one side because they have a very rigid value system and mm -hmm. what to go for, whereas in the NHS, um, in free-floating liberty and no guidance <laughs> whatsoever. And 
I think a lot of psychological problems are in the end also value problems. Mm. What to go for, what to do, what, why do we suffer, those things you touched upon. Yeah. And how the NHS might be able to overcome it. Well, I suppose in a sense we're probably going to explore some of that today, but it's it certainly just going back to the, the book by the, by, by, by the Royal College of Psychiatrists, um, uh, Spirituality and Psychiatry, they try and actually um, engage with this issue right at the, uh, at the beginning by, by talking uh, about the sort of complementary roles. And I think we need probably um, in our education system to be able to talk more with people about these issues, about, about values, the values of the, of the professions, but also people's personal values and where they're coming from and their inner spirit. Um, but unless you give staff some space to discuss these issues, it's very difficult for them to engage with service users or patients. Yes, just there at the, the back. Yeah. No, behind you, Henry. <laughs> um, this is carrying on, really, with the PC thing. Mm. Do you think that this um, obsession with political correctness and health and safety has restricted members of the um, NHS from helping patients? Yeah, I think, it, I think it probably has. Um, again, I think one needs a sort of discussion about the issues around, about, uh, around boundaries. What can, I, what can I say? I mean, I sometimes make a joke about this, that I'm, um, I come from a Christian, from the Roman Catholic tradition, but I sometimes say I'm not an evangelical Christian, but I am an evangelical runner. Um, and that's only half a joke, because when I'm talking to people sometimes, if they say they're stressed, I, I start to say, you know, have you thought about, about running, you know? Or you might say, have you thought about, about, about meditating? So, in a sense, one just has to be careful about pushing one's own um, uh, value system uh, too much. But, but sometimes it's, it, is, it is helpful to say, well, what's helpful uh, to me in sort of broad terms? What helps me to keep me uh, sane and balanced and 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 centered. Going back to Brian, who I, I talked about right at the beginning of the service user I work with, he said the worst thing about the NHS is that they don't allow discussion about my faith. He said the second worst thing is when people try and convert me. <laughs> so there you have, you have the balance. It's difficult. But again, unless we discuss these things, that's going to be difficult. But, you know, I, I was in a taxi the other day in, in Leeds uh, with a young taxi driver who was dressed in a way that I presumed he was probably a Muslim. I said, are you, are you Muslim? Yes. Do you practice? Yes. Um, do you go to the mosque five times a day? Yes. So I rather jokingly and rather flippantly said, that probably restricts your earnings as a taxi driver. And he said, well, yes, but what's more important? And I just used that example when I was talking to the staff about, well, if he was on your ward tomorrow, what's going to be most important to him it's going to be the praying five times a day. It's time for okay. one more, and I'm just down here in... I'm not sure I should allow my family to ask questions. This could be very difficult. <laughs> Peter, I try not to make it difficult. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for a fascinating presentation. Very, very impressive. Great to hear you as a, a senior member in the organization mm. talking about the importance of spirituality and the obviously of meeting senior colleagues mm. um, uh, who are sharing these views or understanding mm. uh, the, the rationale that you're giving them. Mm. Um, but how do you get it into the training schools? How do you get it into the basic foundation formation mm. of doctors? Uh, and, and people say that uh, it, it comes right in from the roots rather than uh, mm. just a few senior people at the top seeming to get out of it. Yeah. 
Yes, uh, and thank you for that, Mike. And it, and it does connect with what um, the other questioners were, were asking. And there isn't an easy answer to that. I mean, even the Royal College who's produced their book have found it quite difficult at times to get some of this work into the curriculum. Um, there are an increasing number of, of universities that have centers for spirituality, um, sometimes a bit sort of on the edge, but somewhere like Chester has quite a strong uh, center. Gloucester has one that's growing. There are others, Staffordshire, uh, of course, as, as well. Um, but it, it isn't easy to get it through. There are now really good publications from every single profession, uh, uh, psychiatry, social work, uh, occupational therapy, nursing, uh, some excellent publications that have come out. But I think it is quite a, a difficult battle to get that in because you do have very, very divided very divided views. Um, but one of the most moving days I ever spent was when my colleague, Professor Bernard Moss, himself at Staffordshire, invited social workers across the three years to come in and discuss spirituality. And what we did was we asked them to bring an item from their personal lives that they found really important to them and that they were prepared to talk about. And it was an incredibly moving experience. And I think we just need to probably experiment a bit with with that. Thank you. Perhaps one of the other themes that we might pick up coming out of your talk, Professor Gilbert, is the, the connection between spirituality and humour, since um, we had the jokes <laughs> and uh, just exploring those connections too might be something that we pick up over the course of the next couple of days. Would you please thank Professor Gilbert for his talk. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can subscribe to the Contemplative Revolution podcast and listen to your favourite podcast app. In the media section of the WCCM website, wccm.org, you can also find a large amount of video and audio content on meditation. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.